Welcome, I'm your host Nino Cattaneo and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. Today, in honor of the Juneteenth holiday, I want to reshare a small extract from the conversations that I had with two fabulous guests last year. First, you're going to hear from Jason Greer, labor and diversity expert. Jason is the founder of Greer Consulting, a firm that specializes in creating positive workplaces. He is also the author of the book Bias, Racism and the Brain. Second, you're going to hear from Zanika Chatman. Zanika is a coach who specializes in helping women overcome bullying in the workplace. And now here's a little bit of my conversation with Jason. And it's very clear to me that a lot of what is driving you is the idea of fulfilling a mission. So what is your mission? Oh, man, I have a couple of missions, right? So there's a couple of different buckets, my brother. One of those missions is I want to create positive workplaces, whether that's a virtual workplace, because I know we're going to the hybrid system now based on COVID, whether that's a virtual place, whether that's a physical place, I want to create positive work environments so that employees feel respected and recognized and so that companies can continue to pump out massive productivity in ways because it benefits all of us, right? I would say the second bucket for me is I want to eradicate racism in our lifetime. I was a victim in 1991. My father was a, a grade school principal. My father was a grade school principal. My mother was a nurse, born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri. And my father was hired on position as a principal at a grade school in Dubuque, Iowa. We had no idea that our family, because my mother and I would eventually move there in 1992 because my parents weren't going to take me out of my senior year in high school. And I'm dating myself. I'm 48 years old, um, but I was 17 years old in 1991. And so we moved my father to Dubuque, accepted the job, and we didn't know that our family was the first family to come to Dubuque under the constructive integration plan whereby they were going to recruit over 100 Black families into Dubuque over the course of 10 years. So, you know, you're basically talking about forced integration. And as a result of forced integration, there were people within the city who felt like these Black folks, meaning us, were going to come and take their jobs, going to do all the things that they had heard Black people from the stereotypes that are associated with Black people were going to do to their community. So the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, the KKK, came in. They organized a um, group called the National Association for the Advancement of White People. And they started to burn crosses literally in protest of my father, accepting that position at Irving Elementary School in Dubuque, Iowa. And then they decided to personalize it by burning additional crosses in protest of my mother and myself. And so you go through that kind of thing, Dino, at 17 years old, where I'm still trying to figure out who I'm taking to homecoming let alone dealing with the fact that there is a group of people who don't know me, don't know my father, but they are helping on making sure that we don't move into their community. When the reality is my father only came to that community because he wanted to educate kids. He didn't care they were white. He didn't care they were black, Hispanic, Asian, whatever the case might be. He just had a love for educating kids. And so that has really fueled me. I'm 48 years old, just as I stated. You know, that has really fueled me in terms of wanting to create the type of life and the type of environment in which people don't have to go through the same things that I went through, the things that my father and my mother went through and their parents and so on. So I have a couple missions. Wow. First of all, I am so sorry 
that you and your family had to go through this. Second, I want to thank you for sharing this really powerful story because we are talking about crosses being burned in people's lawns in 1991, which coincidentally is when I moved to the U.S. from Italy. And that is only 30 years ago. And I don't know that people realize or want to acknowledge that this was still going on at the time and may even be going on right now. So I actually... Underneath the larger umbrella of managing employer and employee relationships, I know that your firm also does DEI work. And I also know that you recently wrote a book about it. So I'm thinking that maybe a good way to get into this topic, it would be for you to tell us a little bit about your book. Absolutely. So thank you for asking that question, Dino. So I wrote a book, co-authored a book with my best friend, Phil Dixon. And Phil is one of the international leader on the neuroscience of leadership. Basically, how the brain impacts the way that you go about leading. So when the George Floyd moment happened, and let's be real, it, George Floyd moment might have happened in, what was it, 2020? I think it was 2020. It was that type of moment that sort of resonated around the world because you saw all of these mass protests of people screaming Black Lives Matter and all the debates that were going on, conversations around race that were happening at a high and a low level. I say a high level when you have people who are engaging in sort of peaceful conversations on what this looks like. I say a low level where you had cities that were literally burning. I remember calling Phil and saying, I want to do something. You know, we talk about diversity all the time. We do all these diversity programs for these corporations. But what if we created something by which people could tap into my stories, coupled with your brain-based leadership skills, and we create the type of book that would really take people into their own stories? Because, Dino, just as you said, just as you lead into this question, there are a lot of people who are really under the mistaken notion that racism is not nearly as bad today as what it was 50, 60 years ago. Because when you look at television, you see LeBron James on television. We've had an African-American president, Barack Obama. There's a feeling that things have gotten better. And don't get me wrong, things have gotten better. But that's sort of relative. Better based on what? So we created this book called Bias, Racism, and the Brain, where we are literally taking you through my stories. But we're not taking you through those stories from the perspective of shaming people because there's no shame in this. We're taking people through the stories because what we found through our brain is that the only way, Dino, that I'm ever going to understand you and say your perspective coming from Italy in 1991 is by understanding your story is by hearing you. Because the more that I hear your story, the more my brain changes to the point Look, Dino, we didn't know each other prior to, what, 10 a.m. Central Time? And here we are, it's going on 44 minutes, and we're having this conversation. What we found is that our brains typically divide people into one of two states. If you remember my in-group, which means that you look like me, talk like me, think like me, act like me, therefore you're me, I feel good. There's this dopamine effect that goes on within your body that your brain releases that says when you're in the company of people who are in your in-group, I feel good being around you, so I want to be around you more. Now, on the other side of that, if you are a member of my out-group, which means you don't look like me, you don't talk like me, don't think like me, therefore you're not me 
eat, the cortisol effect kicks in. The cortisol effect is nothing more than a stress hormone. So when you get around people who look like you, your brain kicks into the reward state. That dopamine kicks in and I want to be around you. But if you're around people who don't look like you and they're members of your out group, the cortisol effect kicks in, which puts you into the threat state, which means I want to run from you. The challenge that we have, in, not only in this country, but throughout the world, is the fact that technology has brought us to the point where we're having this conversation, Dino. I'm in St. Louis. And Dino, where are you based? I am in Boston. You're in Boston. So I'm in St. Louis. You're in Boston. We're having this conversation virtually. It's awesome. You're going to publish this podcast. It's awesome. Technology has increased to the point where we are about as connected as we've ever been before. But our brain has not evolved. So our brains still think that we're baked, you know, back in the day of our ancestors, still scouring the environment for food, water, and shelter. So we're coming across people who are not like us. And since that threat state kicks in, as opposed to taking the time to getting to know people, we want to run from people. Or we want to create assumptions about people that we ultimately create, which are biases. And we think, so many of us think that we're not racist, but we are. So many of us think we're not sexist, but we are. So many of us think we're not homophobic, but we are. Because the confirmation bias says, well, I can't be racist because I have a black friend, right? I mean, how many times have we heard situations where somebody gets caught saying something racist and the first thing they say is, I'm not racist? Well, you are racist. Admit that you're racist, but oftentimes we can't admit that we're racist until a lens is put in front of us, our mirror is put in front of us where we actually see who we are. So in terms of the whole diversity, you know, the DEI perspective that we bring from Bias Racism in the Brain book, as well as the trainings that we're doing, it's all about helping people to tap into their stories. So part of your diversity training right now with corporations also employs this notions of tapping into the brain and tapping into stories? Absolutely. So if a company wanted to put into place a DEI program that has real results and teeth, you know, and is moving from, from the right place, if you will, is not just something that they do because they need to meet a legal minimum or some for PR reasons, where should they start? What are like the most important elements for it? Yeah, great questions, Dino. I would say the first thing is be honest. Be honest about why you want to do this. The second thing is to be honest about how we're going to do this. And I would say the third step is do it. Look, what bothers me the most about the corporate actions toward diversity as well as the social actions toward diversity is that we're just not honest about why diversity matters, right? Everything is so built into the theoretical. So I'll give you an example. When I am doing a employee relations engagement, I generally get contacted by the corporate in-house attorney or the chief human resources officer, whatever the case might be. So from the time they contact me to the time that we actually get boots on the ground in terms of being there to do the engagement, you're talking about maybe four to five days. Quick action time. But when a company contacts me and they want to do diversity training or diversity consulting, I generally know that it's going to take about maybe four to five months before I actually get in to do it. And here's why. Because there are all these stakeholders that all of a sudden get involved, and those stakeholders oftentimes, with all due respect, happen to be white males, are so scared. And it's like you have to vent through them what is going to be discussed. And you recognize very early on that as they're vetting you, what they're vetting is really are you going to make me feel bad about being white? Or are you going to make me feel 
like I'm part of the conversation because this whole conversation around race is so difficult, right? That's where I come back when you ask the question about what steps can be taken. It's let's be honest about why we're going to do this, but let's be honest about the fact that the demographics of the world, not just America, the world, because we're in a global economy, the demographics of the world suggest that the more knowledge that we have about how other groups of people think, how other groups of people act, and the expectations that other groups of people have about how we show up as a company really do matter. And if we're not honest about that, yeah, you might turn a good profit in 2022, but what's going to happen when it's 2042? 20 years have gone by and the world's demographics have changed even more, and you've done nothing internally to prepare for that. If you want to listen to the whole interview, Jason was the featured guest on episode 31, and you can learn more about him by going to his website, HireGCI.com, spelled H-I-R-E-G-C-I.com. And now, here's a selection from my conversation with Zanika. So what I'd like to do now is focused on your particular area of focus, and it's an area that is a large and very problematic part of the overall phenomenon of bullying in the workplace, and it is the bullying of women of color. So you said that when you started speaking out, you received an enormous amount of calls from other women of color, and you were shocked by the amount of responses that you got. Let's start framing this specific issue and what makes it unique and what makes it so relevant. Part of what makes it unique, I think one of the things that we have to talk about is when you are a person of color, I think there's a perception that that is kind of what everybody thinks is happening. So when I started to get bullied and get discriminated against, I recognized that I was one, I was the only person of color in that team, but I did not want to place that label on it. So there's this immediate downplaying of your own intuition of what's happening to you. So you start to kind of lie to yourself a little bit and say, no, 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 that's, that's not what happens. Or when you get hit with a microaggression, no, 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 they didn't, they didn't mean it that way. That wasn't like, that wasn't a racially fueled thing. But I think when you start to look at the numbers of how many people report being discriminated against, even though every group will say, hey, I've been discriminated against, Black employees report being discriminated against based on race at a 75% rate compared to our counterparts. So we feel like we experience racial discrimination more than any other group. And so particularly with, with Black women, we also don't have the support structures that our other colleagues do. So oftentimes it's not just the bullying, but it's the bullying on top of, well, we're not getting the same quality of work. So we're not even getting the work that allows us to excel in the career, right? We don't have the networks that other people do. And so I think it is that, I think it's also people's individual unconscious bias that what made it easy for people to bully me is, we were, we were a team of all women, but they would often say in, in my, my white counterparts, I see my niece in her. She reminds me of my niece. So there's this familiar relationship, whereas with me, there wasn't any of that. Right. So I guess I can't really pinpoint what makes it unique other than the fact that 
people of color don't often want to own up that that is what's happening. And so we end up staying in the situation so long so that we can justify that this is not happening to me. Like I am not being discriminated against when everybody around you can see that you are. When you talk to other women of color, the, the women that have reached out to you, obviously you, you mentioned a couple of patterns around the the not getting the best work and then the the trying to say, oh, no, this is not happening because it's racially motivated, et cetera. What are some of the other elements and common themes that you've heard from your from your peers who've gone through similar experiences? Yeah, so I think microaggressions are definitely one that everybody can relate to. And I will say mostly around black women is there we carry this perception of not wanting to be perceived as angry. So we don't want the angry black women stereotype. So there's a there's also a nuance to how you speak up or how you present yourself. So if if my counterpart goes into a meeting and she's very boisterous and, and very like flamboyant about how she is defending her point wow, she's so passionate. But if I do that, if I even raise my voice just a little bit, or even if I don't raise my voice, if I'm very stoic, it's always this like, why are you mad? Don't get mad. Don't be mad about it. Or people will tell women of color sometimes, because because we are, right? We're trying to balance this like, I don't want to get too passionate because that doesn't work for me. I don't want to be perceived as angry. So people will say, well, I just, I can't figure you out. And so, so there's all of those dynamics that I think women of color are, are carrying how we navigate the pressures of the workplace, while also just sometimes just being absolutely bullied and harassed. Obviously, it would be great to have a, a magic wand and take it all out. But in absence of a magic wand, actually, companies can take practical steps to address this, right? Where some of... so. If we have to layer, you know, we talked a little earlier about some of the steps that HR people can take to address bullying overall. What are some additional steps that relate specifically to bullying of people and and then specifically women of color? So I, I think that companies can start to center women of color in some of their DEI initiatives. I think that if you talk to a lot of women of color, they will tell you that some of the DEI initiatives that everybody was so gung ho to implement just two years ago have fallen short and they're not. And and a lot of numbers continue to remain stagnant of of women of color moving into those C-suite positions. I think that companies can be very intentional about creating some of those networks because that's something else that we know women of color suffer from greater is that they don't have the same kind of connection. So, you know, a lot of times the the rhetoric around mentoring is to get a sponsor. Well, that is awesome. But when you don't have a sponsor, what do you do? If your other sponsors are people of color who are also not in the room when the decisions are being made, how does one get a sponsor? So being intentional about making sure that we really are creating a diverse pipeline. And I think some companies are a little shy to do that. But I think that the only way that you you are going to implement and create change is to be intentional about it. Um, and then I'm really big on on having having some kind of policy and specific wording around bullying and harassment. I mean, we have most companies will have a no harassment policy, but I think we need to take, take it a step further and really look at at bullying policies. And I think we need to I think that companies need to start asking those questions in their employee engagement surveys and see what happens. 
have you encountered, you know, now in your work and talking to so many other people that have been and women of color that have been bullied and discriminated and maybe looking into more companies, have you encountered places that actually have, oh, here's an example of a great practice that is actually helping and creating impact? Not yet, but I won't say that that doesn't exist. A lot of my work right now is on the individual. And I believe that if we can put the people back together, that they can help create change. I won't say that there aren't any, I just haven't seen any yet. I think you mentioned earlier, you know, the mentoring and the fact, well, if I'm being mentored, but somebody who was also being discriminated, what are some of the, have there been cases of some of your clients that have, you know, been able to kind of like overcome this and then be in a mentoring position and being effective at mentoring and some of other, you know, to prevent other people to, to get into the same situation? Yeah. So I've had some clients who have gone from, I will say, just being in, in the throes of a, of a bullying situation to go from that to a place where they are mentoring other people, but also a place to where they feel like they can advocate for themselves and ask people who really could be sponsors to sponsor them and support them. And so I think that that is all what happens when you're able to kind of put the confidence and put the pieces back together and really get connected back to who you are and what kind of work experience you want to have so that you start to own your own story a little bit. This has been great. So I want to close this conversation where I always like to ask my guests for tips. And so I want to do something a little different today. So assuming that hopefully among the people who are listening here, there are leaders of various kind who actually have the opportunity to make an impact within their company. What are two or three actions that you would want somebody who's listening now to say like, Hey, I can do the, you know, I can take the steps and make the environment better in my company. I think one of the first things that they can do is if they're in a position of power to look around your organization. I mean, to really look around your organization and see if, does this organization truly represent the people and the customers that we serve? Or does this organization truly represent my values? I think another very easy thing that leaders can do is to have a conversation. If you have women of color in your organization, and it doesn't have to be the one that sits right next to you, it can be, but stretch yourself a little bit and really go have a conversation with that person who maybe is not in that middle management position, but You've heard good things. You've heard their name and have a conversation with them and really ask them, hey, what has your experience been like here and how can I help you? And then I think the other thing that is always a plus for any manager is to really consider some coaching training. I, I just wholeheartedly believe, I know there are some coaches that are bullied, but, but I just believe that when you come to leadership from a place of coaching and a place of service, it's really hard to bully somebody. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you want to hear the whole conversation with Zanika, go back to episode 50. And you can learn more about her by going to her website, zanikachatman.com, spelled Z-E-N-I-C-A-C-H-A-T-M-A-N.com. If you enjoyed this episode, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that you listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell all your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. 
Make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts, Audible, Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating and a review. Give us five stars. For more information, please go to the show website, al4ep.com, spelled with the number four. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. Please follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. The handle in both places is at al4edp with the letter D. And on Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This show was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solution. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. Thank you for listening and come back next week.